Heavenly Father, this morning we truly desire to be able to say with our lips and express truly in our hearts that we are satisfied in Christ alone. We sing that, Father, and I know we desire it, but more oftentimes than not, our weeks and our months do not reflect a satisfaction in Christ alone. We take the gospel which has been given to us freely, the forgiveness that we have through His blood, the imputation of righteousness that is given to us by Your grace, and instead of being satisfied as sons and daughters of You, the living God, we want to add to that. We want to add to the simple, pure, beautiful gospel. We ask, I ask, Lord, this morning that You would do a mighty work amongst my brothers and sisters here, that You would bring crystal clarity to this true gospel message that not only has the power to save the unsaved, but to sanctify those who are in Christ this very morning. Cause us, Lord, to see the great work of Christ on the cross to save sinners like us so that we can even this hour say we are truly satisfied in Christ alone. Your grace is sufficient. Lord, especially during this season when we spend so much time so much time on material things and we miss the focus which is the incarnation of your son that he might come and live the life that we were supposed to live and then give his life to redeem us by his blood father i I ask lord this morning that from this text whether mature or immature in the faith you would make the gospel so clear to us that it would not only transform us this morning, but it would be proclaimed from our lips to all those in this mission field who do not know you. We ask that you would, through your gospel, save many, just as you have us, for your glory, in Christ's name, amen. Hmm. There are times when I, I sing some of the hymns and I'm immediately convicted. I think to myself, I, I don't know that I'm satisfied in Christ alone. Um, I pray that when you sing, if you're convicted, you confess that and say, I want that, Lord, because he wants that for you. Don't ever become discouraged by singing the truths in the hymns, right? Don't ever become discouraged by them. Be encouraged by them. Uh, the gospel plus nothing is the title of the sermon. You thought, well, that's, that's just a strange, I'm not great on sermon titles, I admit it. Um, but if I added a little math there for my math people, you said, oh, I can get, I can get the addition sign. Um, Acts 15, it's a watershed chapter in the New Testament. And if you know your New, New Testament, you know that it is. Uh, and if you've been with us these last few weeks, I mean, we, last few weeks, last several weeks, we started in, in Acts chapter 1 through 5, and we saw the testimony of the apostles and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, and we saw the church in Gru- Jerusalem grow rapidly. And then in chapters 6 through 9, we saw the gospel move outside of the city. And we saw the Holy Spirit bringing the gospel to all of Judea and to Samaria, primarily through Philip. And then, if you remember, all the Hellenistic Jews that that fled Jerusalem after Stephen's martyrdom. And then we've spent the last several weeks looking at chapters 10 through 14. And the Holy Spirit moved beyond Judea, beyond Samaria, and brought the gospel to the Gentiles. And we saw it most prominently in Peter's interaction with Cornelius, 
where if you remember, he shared the gospel and many were saved and the Holy Spirit descended upon them. And then we spent the last few weeks in chapters 13 and 14 looking at Paul and Barnabas make their way through Cyprus and then up to the Galatian province and the Holy Spirit was planting churches there. In other words, the, the promise that Jesus made in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, that they would be witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth is being fulfilled in real time. And so this is a very exciting thing for us as we get to chapter 15. The, the only thing that there was a hurdle still in the church was the church's understanding of how do these Gentiles come in? I mean, it was a real question for the church 16 years post the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The Gentiles are hearing the gospel and they're believing. Does that mean they're saved? And do they have to do anything else to get into the church? And so this is the, the question that um, the church in Jerusalem wrestled with and it's the question that we've wrestled with for 2,000 years and we're still wrestling with today. We know the answer biblically, but we don't know the answer very well in our own hearts. And I hope we can see that today. If you were here with us several weeks ago and we hit Acts chapter 11, you already got a taste of this. Remember, uh, Peter goes back to Jerusalem and they say, what were you doing in Cornelius' house? He explained to them what happened. You proclaimed the gospel. The Holy Spirit came down. Many of them were saved. And then this is what Peter says to the church in Jerusalem. He says, if God gave them the same gift that he gave us who believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I to hinder the work of God? He said, Are you, did you want me to stop what God was doing? Of course, no person in their right mind would want to thwart what God is visibly doing. Um, and that's fair enough. That was the right response, but that's where it was left. There was no answer as to, well, what does that mean? If the Gentile professes Christ, is that it? Or do they have to do something else? Do they have to get circumcised? Do they have to become proselytes and become Jewish first? Do they have to submit to the laws of Moses? All these questions we take for granted were being wrestled out here in Jerusalem in this time. Um, so it... Chapter 15 is a place we want to sit on, and we're going to sit on it for two or three weeks, so I hope that you're patient with me. We're going to hit the first 12 verses today and try to get a bearing on what was going on. Luke is telling, giving us the narrative of all that was transpiring in the church in Jerusalem during that council. And so there are three things I want us to get this morning. They're relatively simple, I think, but hopefully there'll be some depth to the understanding. Number one, what was the question that they were struggling with? Number two, what was the process of answering the question? And number three, what was the testimony to verify the answer? So what was the question? What was the problem? How did they get to an answer? And then what was the testimony? We'll see by Peter this week and then by James next week. The theme of the sermon is simple. Adding to the gospel of grace, listen closely, nullifies the gospel of grace. Hmm? If you add to the gospel, you do not have the gospel. If you add to the gospel, you nullify the gospel. All right, so... You ready? Number one. All right. First question. What is the question? I mean, why did they meet? What was the problem? Look at verse one. We're told, but some men came down from Judea. They, remember, any time they're coming down from Jerusalem or Judea, they're coming down. They're literally coming down a mountain, even though in this case they were going north to Antioch of Syria. They came down to the place where Paul and Barnabas were, and they were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Now, if you were here last week, we left off Paul and Barnabas. They had finished up their first missionary journey. They're back in Antioch of Syria. They called the entire church together to give them a missions update. 
And they said, this is what happened. We went to Cyprus, then we went north, and we hit Antioch and Iconium and Perga, and we hit all these places in Derby, and we planted churches, and the gospel was proclaimed, and the Holy Spirit was poured out, and all these Gentiles were saved. And it's just, they're, they're rejoicing over it. Well, word got down to the church in Jerusalem that this was taking place. And, and some of the Jewish Christians in that church, those who were more serious about the law and circumcision, said, you know, uh, we don't know if this is right. And so these men, they march up to Antioch of Syria, and they begin to teach the Christians in Antioch of Syria, who had just heard the report from Paul and Barnabas, that it's not enough to be saved by grace through faith in Christ. You've got to get circumcised according to the laws of Moses. Now, this group represented a sect within the Christian church. We're not talking about Pharisees who did not know Christ. These are Christians inside the church. And they believed, now listen, they believed that salvation required becoming part of a covenant community, right? Becoming part of Israel, because that's what they had been taught going back to Abraham. And that's true. The problem was they were trying to see these people, these Gentiles, become members of the new covenant under the old covenant. Right? There was a new covenant which was through the blood of Christ. And so they believed that in order to enter the covenant blessings of Abraham and truly be saved, that the men would have to be physically circumcised and that all proselytes, those who would be converting, male and female, would have to submit to the laws of Moses. Look at verse 2. Luke tells us that Paul and Barnabas had, <laughs> I love the way this is put in the ESV, no small dissension and debate with them. You know what that means? It was a big debate. It was not small. There was, they were going toe-to-toe with these guys because these guys were actually changing the gospel message. They were saying, it's, it's, you're saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ and, and circumcision and Moses. In other words, they were arguing for the old covenant to come into the new covenant. And if you wanted to be a Christian and be added to the church, you had to do the same. These were not teachings that Paul or Barnabas taught for two years, 1,500 miles, and, and likely thousands of people saved that they never talked about circumcision. And so they're defending their position as well. Now, early in the dialogue, they probably realized we're not getting anywhere, right? And so they decide, the church decides, we got to go to the church in Jerusalem. We got to talk to them too. We got to get counsel from the apostles and the church there. And so Paul and Barnabas and, uh, and some others, and Titus was in that others, by the way, which is really kind of cool. Look at verse four. They, they head down to Jerusalem, Verse 4, when they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. Verse 5, but some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees, now this, these are Pharisees who came to Christ, and many did. They rose up and said, it is, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. Okay, so they're Christians who know the gospel, but they think that these pieces are necessary too. So we're, this is amazing. We're 48, 49, 50 AD max, 16 years after the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. And the church is still grappling with how do you get saved and how do you get into the church? Is it really just by grace through faith in Christ alone, or do we got to do these other old covenant things? Now, we want to be extremely gracious. These are right questions and it makes sense that they were asking them. You say, well, well, why is that? Up to this point in time, who were the people of Israel? Only the children of Abraham enjoyed the promises of God. And so this question was, for the Gentile to come in, what must take place? It wasn't, it wasn't can the Gentile be saved? 
It was, what must they do to be saved? Now, this is really important. Going all the way back to Abraham, Genesis chapter 22. God said to Abraham what? From your seed, from your descendant who is Christ, the nations will be blessed, right? Most of the prophets, Isaiah in particular, Isaiah 56, said, my house shall be called a house of prayer for who? For all peoples I will gather yet others, Gentiles, God said through Isaiah, to myself besides those who I've already gathered, the Jews. And, and we, we've already seen that the, the Holy Spirit has clarified this, has he not? I mean, through Philip with the Ethiopian eunuch and those who came to saving grace in Samaria and certainly Peter and Cornelius' house. These, are, these were real salvations that took place without becoming a Jew first. And for centuries, Gentiles could actually participate in the blessings of Abraham by becoming Jewish. Right? You could go through the proselyte process and you would be trained and you would, if you were male, you get circumcised and males and females would submit to the dietary regulations and the ceremonial regulations. In other words, the question's never been, can Gentiles experience the covenant blessings of God? It was, how do they? And that's the question before the church. How does someone come in? How is someone saved? Now, the Gentiles coming in for the entire time of the proselyte process, had to become Jewish in order to enjoy that. Now, again, this question, you might say antiquated. Well, 2,000 years, we, this is under our belt. We get this. It's by grace through faith in Christ. None of this other stuff, no circumcision, no law, no good works. Um, it, for us, individually, in our own culture, because we're so wrapped up in our own professions of faith and just who we are in Jesus, independent of a collective culture, it, it may be hard for us to understand, but in the context of the first century, salvation was in the context of covenant, God and man, and the covenant was in the context of community, God and his community of people, not just me, my Bible, and the Holy Spirit. So they were trying to understand how was it that these blessings of Abraham were going to be applied to people who were not Abraham's descendants? How was that going to take place? Up to this point in time, all the promises of God made to Abraham to be his chosen people, his royal priesthood set apart for his glory, they were only for the descendants of Abraham. And specifically, we know that promise came through Judah, and therefore, who? The Jews, right? And so if, we are, if we're 48, 49, if we're 50 AD at this point in time, up to this point, being required... It was necessary to be a Jew to enjoy the promise. All the Christians who were saved up to this point were Jewish, right, before the Gentile started coming in. Jesus was what? A Jewish man born to a Jewish family in a Jewish culture, in a Jewish province, and it was God who said, this is the Jewish Messiah, right? So everything is Jewish up to this point in time. For centuries, God had promised the covenant to his people. And Christianity early on was recognized as a messianic movement within Judaism, not outside of it. And as I've already said, that converts would come in by becoming Jewish. So it makes sense that they would ask this question. It's a really, really important question, and it contextually makes sense. I would say it was a very responsible question. Okay? Now, to be really clear, clear they were not asking or trying to debate whether or not the moral laws applied. 
right? There was no debate in the church, Jew or, or Christian, did like the Ten Commandments apply. They were talking about the ritual and ceremonial provisions that Christ had satisfied in full. Did we still have to do those? Did we still have to, to, to adhere to the rituals and purification of, of how we eat and who we eat with? And do we still have to go through circumcision? It was these aspects that the council had to address. Um, and so it was a question that was this simple. Is it grace alone, by faith alone, in Christ alone? Or is it those things plus something else? Is it a pure, simple gospel? And so the question really is, what is the gospel? Can I be saved by grace through faith in Christ alone? Or do I have to take something and add to it? These men were arguing, you've got to have circumcision, you've got to have the laws of Moses, or you're not in. You're not saved. You're not part of the covenant promises. Now, a gospel plus message of salvation, the gospel plus anything else, has been one of Satan's greatest weapons of confusion for 2,000 years. Right? He takes the gospel and he doesn't nullify it. He says it's good and you got to add to it. And that's how he has deceived millions throughout the centuries. In fact, shortly before the Jerusalem Council, the Apostle Paul wrote a letter to the Galatian churches he had just spent two years ministering to. And in that letter, there were Judaizers who came to the churches. He plants the church there right behind him saying, oh, salvation by grace is good and you need to get circumcised. Salvation by grace is good and adhere to the dietary regulations. And so he writes this letter. Listen to his not so mild words on the matter. He said in Galatians chapter 1, verse 8, if we, Paul speaking himself an apostle, or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, salvation by grace through faith in Christ alone, he said what? Let them be under God's curse. Those are not mild words. He's saying do not, do not play with the gospel. Do not add to it. Do not take away from it. In the second century, there was a movement by the Gnostics who came in and said the gospel of grace is good, but we also believe that you have to have what they called perfect knowledge or secret knowledge in the inner man. A little bit later, um, we have Augustine, of course, takes on Pelagius. He was a British monk in Rome at the time, and he thought that the grace was good too, but he didn't think it was necessary to be saved. Pelagius went so far as to say that you could, upon your own good works, earn salvation and entrance into God's kingdom. A little bit later in the 12th, to fourth centuries in, in France and Italy, there were the, the Cathars, and that, that literally means the pure ones. Um, they, they went so far as to argue grace was good, but the physical world was fallen. They went actually believed that the physical world was made by an evil demagogue, and therefore they went to, we've seen this for centuries, extreme asceticism. So everything from um, the foods that you ate, you could, they couldn't eat meat, they couldn't eat cheese. That's horrible, that's horrible. No meat, no cheese. Uh, there's no way I'm following this one. No sexual intercourse, any of those things, he said, you can't be saved. Now, now today, we see it today. Uh, the common ones today, you have Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, Seventh-day Adventists, they say grace is good, plus what? Plus works. We must work our way into, into heaven. Catholics claim grace plus the sacraments. Pentecostals, many of them, claim grace plus the second outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Point is simple. Grace, the gospel of grace plus anything, is not the gospel of grace. 
We can never, ever add to it, either in formal doctrine or in our own hearts. And I think that's where it's most dangerous for evangelical Christians, right? We think, well, those things are foolish. We know it's, it's grace alone. And then we begin to examine ourselves, and we realize that it's grace plus something in who we are, in our own hearts. You believe you're saved by grace through faith until you don't get that promotion at work, and you're suddenly in a deep depression. And you think, why am I so depressed? Well, you believe you're saved by grace through faith and your own success, right? You've attached that to the goodness of the gospel. Maybe for you, you, uh, you believe in a, a gospel of grace and you've attached it to something like your marriage or how well you parent your children or, or how much schooling you get under your belt because Jesus loves smart people. Maybe you attach it to your religion. Maybe you're far more religious than you think. You say, well, I'm, I'm an evangelical Southern Baptist. Maybe, but maybe you've attached to the gospel your, your faithfulness to attend church or how often you read your Bible or the depth and time. How long did you pray today? I prayed for an hour today. That's good stuff. It may be good stuff or it may be stuff you're attaching to the gospel itself in order to make God happy so he'll let you in. Um, Maybe you're out on the streets fighting for the unborn, ministering to the sick and dying. Um, these are all good things, my beloved. But if they are part of the gospel for you, then they are not good. Right? If you've taken those things and you've said, it's grace plus these things, then you've nullified grace. Grace is unmerited favor. So if you're working for it, it's not grace. The gospel plus anything is no longer the gospel. And it has no power to save and I believe to be a very, very dangerous thing in the evangelical church today because we still attach to it. We're not Mormons and we're not Jehovah's Witnesses, but we attach something to the gospel in our own hearts, and then we run with that. So the question before the church in Jerusalem is the same question we've been asking for centuries. Is it really grace alone? I was sharing the gospel with a woman two weeks ago, and she said to me, can it really just be grace? I said, what do you want to add to it? What do you want to add? She said, well, we have to add something. I said, well, why? Why do you want to add anything to it? The grace is sufficient, and if it's not, then you don't have it. You don't have it. Um, it's a question that we must ask ourselves today. Not so much on paper, I think. On paper, on creeds and doctrines, I think we're pretty solid, but what about our own hearts? What are you attaching to the gospel of grace that nullifies the gospel of grace in your life? So the second question is, well, how did they, how did they get this answer? How do, they, how do they process through this? And this is not, I wouldn't say this is the main point of the sermon, but it was so important for us today because of how we process major questions like this. So the men of Judea, they came down and they're poisoning the waters in Antioch of Syria. They're saying, the grace is good, but get circumcised and follow the laws of Moses and then we'll let you into the covenant promises of Abraham. And so, as we said, Paul and Barnabas, they head down to Jerusalem and they said, we've got to go talk to the elders and the apostles in Jerusalem and get some Catholic universal consensus on this. So look at verse 6. The apostles and the elders were gathered together. This is in Jerusalem now. This is at the council to consider this matter. What is the matter? The matter is, what is the gospel? What does it mean to be saved? How do you get in? Verse 7. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said, we'll get to that in point 3, but I want you to notice something. Paul and Barnabas debate ferociously in Antioch of Syria. Peter and the elders in the, in the church debate ferociously in Jerusalem. Trying to come to something, you'd say, this is so basic, guys. Why don't you know this? 
In fact, the word debate there in, in the Greek, it doesn't translate well. When we think of debate, we think of argumentation or some of those foolish things that we do in informal debating, which is really not debating either. The word means to investigate thoroughly, listen, in order to get to the bottom of a matter and have a resolution. It means to dig, 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 dig until you come to the bottom and say, this is what is true. Now, this process is really significant for us today and I think important for our moment in light of how we approach doctrine and practice. As Western Christians, it's usually, it's usually individualized. And it's me, maybe me and my wife, maybe me, my wife, and my family. And I have my Bible, and I have the Holy Spirit, and this is how I'm going to engage in my faith formation. That is foreign to the Bible, and it is foreign to the church throughout history. They didn't form doctrine and practice like that. You alone with the Holy Spirit in the Bible. In fact, that's led to most of the cults that we have throughout the past 2,000 years. I want you to notice something. The church in Antioch had it right. They knew it was by grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone. They had it right. The apostle Paul certainly had it right, and he's an apostle. He could have said, listen, I'm going to exercise my apostolic authority and put an end to this. He could have. Certainly the elders in the church in Jerusalem and the apostles and the, uh, Peter and the apostles who were there had it right. So all these people in all these churches with lots of power have it right, and yet what don't they do? They don't say, upon my authority, me, Peter, me, Paul, me, an elder. They don't say that. They say, you know what? We, we got to figure this out collectively. We got to meet. We got to talk. We got to pray. We got to study. And we got to debate until we get this right. In other words, they bring the weight of the doctrine into the community of the church where it belongs. You say, well, why is that? Because God's word has always belonged to the community of believers. It's the community's word, right? He gives it to his people, not person. And so they understood that if we're going to get this answer right, and they, they had to get it right, and he, I mean, how amazing it would be if we didn't know what the gospel was. So they had to get this right, and they had to get it right in the context of the community, not one person, not one apostle, but the whole community. And as I thought about this, I thought, what a, what a stark contrast for us, and what a stark contrast. Most of us come up with doctrine and practice and have for years based upon personal experience with God, personal Bible studies, personal revelations. During the Enlightenment, I don't know why they call it that. Well, I do know why they call it that, but they ought not call it that. That's a euphemism for a time period, which was the exaltation of mankind, right? During the Enlightenment, the individual was raised and the group or community was diminished. And from the Enlightenment, what we saw in the church is a shift from communal to individual faith formation. What am I going to believe and how am I going to practice it? Coming out of the enlightenment, the church said, that's going to be up to me. And don't you tell me how I worship God. And don't you tell me what I believe in God or how I will practice that faith. In other words, we became much more autonomous than the Bible or church history allows. So instead of thinking about our faith in the context of the community being developed over time, and this is a prop, so listen, this is a problem in evangelical churches more so than the Catholic Church or the Anglican Church or the Presbyterian Church. They still have a much stronger tie to church history than we do for lots of reasons. But in the evangelical church, you'll have people say, it's me, my Savior, my Holy Spirit, my Bible by which I form my doctrine. Nanny, 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 go. Don't tell me what to believe. 
What's the result? It's resulted in the evangelical church essentially separating 2,000 years of church history. We start with the, with, the, with the New Testament, we end at Revelation, 90 or so A.D., and some of us, if we're Reformed, we jump to the Reformation, so we skip 1,500 years of church history, and if you're not Reformed, well, you just come straight to the present day. And so it's the New Testament and today, and we leave out 2,000 years of church history, which has developed the doctrine and practice for 2,000 years, which should be significant for us, even if we're a historical people. I would argue, my beloved, that this radically individualized form of Christianity is not only egocentric, it is completely contrary to what we're seeing here even in the book of Acts by the apostles and certainly throughout the history of the church. So how could I make such a a radical statement? We believe some fundamental things. We believe God the Father and God the Son are one, of one substance. We believe that. You say, why do we believe that? The Bible clearly teaches that. But this doctrine... This doctrine of homoousius was hammered out over 300 years. And it wasn't until the Council of Nicaea in 325 that it was actually codified and put in written form. That's a long time. It's a long time. You say, well, we believe the Holy Spirit is truly God. Right? That he is the third person of the holy triune God. Why do we believe that? The Bible clearly teaches it. Well, the Holy Spirit was not officially recognized by the church in written form until the Council of Constantinople in 381. So that's a long time for the Holy Spirit to be kind of hanging out there questioning. Now listen, these doctrines were believed in the church, but in terms of actually being written down as doctrines of faith, took time. Took time. We believe in what we call the hypostatic union of of Jesus Christ, truly God, truly man, right? In the same person, simultaneously, no confusion. We believe that, and we, we believe that because, again, the Bible teaches that absolutely clearly. You can't hold any other position on Jesus other than he is truly God, truly man, at the exact same time in the same person. But it wasn't until the Council of Chalcedon, listen to this, in 451, that that was codified in the church. That's a long time, my beloved. Why am I bringing this to your attention? If the apostles, if the apostles who walked with the Lord were careful about the doctrine and practice of the faith, and the early church fathers literally spent centuries being careful to study and learn and grow on the doctrines of this faith, then I would argue that we as Christians are very arrogant in our own self-reliance on what we believe and how we practice what we believe. We don't rely upon these, these men and the scriptures and the centuries of the teachings. Over the years, we have seen, we've seen many brothers and sisters leave this place over several doctrinal issues. We've had, we've had issues with the gifts, the charismatic gifts, the taking of communion, marriage and divorce, the teaching on child rearing, on, on public schools, teaching on the Lord's Day, on community, on covenant membership. All biblical doctrines, all things that can be hashed out beautifully through the Word of God in the context of the church. But nine times out of ten, if not ten times out of ten, those issues were decided by that individual and then told to the church, and then fellowship was broken. We don't see that in Scripture. Well, we don't see that type of departure in Scripture. We certainly don't see doctoral formation and practice like that. If you, if you believe something to be in the Word of God and you don't know that others do, that's something you want to bring to the church. Right now, nine times out of ten, the Christian who will leave will say, well, it's my Christian conscience. 
my Christian conscience. And that's the trump card, right? That's thrown out there and all dialogue ends. No more debating. My conscience is going to claim that. Well, that's interesting because the word conscience means what? Conscience, with knowledge. And in the Bible and in church history, your conscience, which was, listen, it was to be submitted to the Word of God, inspired by the Holy Spirit, understood through the history of the church in the context of the local church, your conscience was to be shaped not individually, but by the believing body. So your conscience can only be clear if you were able to say that according to the Word of God, in the Spirit, throughout the church history, in this church, this is what we, we believe. Then you could argue conscience clearly. What we do by ourselves, independent of church history, independent of the local body, I would argue is anti-conscience. It's without a true knowledge of who God is and how he's revealed himself throughout the history. So the question this morning might be, what doctrines do you hold true that have not been well-tested in this local body? And I thought, well, I, didn't even, I wouldn't even know where to start with this. What doctrines are you, are you holding on to and that are shaping the way you practice your faith that you've never brought before brothers and sisters here and say, you know, I don't even know if this is right. I learned it when I was eight, and I think it's right, but I don't know. You say, well, how, how bad could this be? How bad is it right now? This is just last, this is this year, 2021. 56% of professing Christians in this country believe that Christianity is a solo journey. That's bad doctrine. Leads to really bad practice. 56% believe that the Christian faith is a solo journey. It's you and Jesus and your Bible. Well, I think we could probably end with that. If, if that's what we believe, then, then everything about church history and development of doctrine doesn't really matter. 40% professing Christians in the church today believe that there is no such thing as Satan. I don't know what to do with that. I really don't know what to do with that. That's an individual belief. I don't like the thought of Satan. They, they believe he's an evil, there's an evil force or power. But again, so Satan, the doctrine of Satan was developed in the context of the Bible for 2,000 years and is to be taught and expressed in the local church. And so if you're a member of a, a healthy body and you say there's no Satan, that church would say, what's wrong with you? Of course there's Satan. You, that's, that's a doctrine that's been established for 2,000 years. 22% today in the church believe that Jesus sinned. Yeah, individual doctrine. Remember, it's me, my faith, my Bible, don't you tell me. 22%. 33% of Christians today believe the Bible, the Quran, and the Book of Mormon teach the same thing. One-third of Christians today in the church believe that. My beloved, if you go solo, that's what you're going to get. If you are part of that 56% of the solo journey, that's where you're going to end up. You don't, if you're not tethered to the Word of God as revealed throughout the 2,000 years of church history, you're going to end up in these places. One of the reasons that we have our, our, our statement of faith, the 1853 uh, New Hampshire Baptist Statement of Faith, we have that as part of our membership covenant so we can be tethered to the doctrines that we know to believe to be true in the Word of God in the context of 2,000 years. One of the reasons that we do Keech's Baptist Catechism is so that we can tether our teachings to the history of the church which was grounded in the word of God. And so I guess I want to encourage you before I go to my last point this morning, my beloved, 
You need to examine the truths you hold so dear that have not been examined well in your own heart. You need to examine them. And and again, I don't know what they are. But if there are things that you hold to that, that may be questionable or certainly debatable in the context of the church, you'd want to bring that. Flesh, bring them on the table. Flesh it out. How great. You say, listen, I'm going to call a Cambrian Park Baptist Church Council, and we're going to sit down, and we're going to fill that fellowship hall. We're going to surround the tables, and we want to study this particular doctrine because I've heard it. I think I believe it's true, but I don't know. Oh, I'll show up. I would love that. I mean, how incredible would that be? And, then, and whatever those issues are in your life, your, your doctrine shapes your practice. What you believe will shape how you believe, how you live on a daily basis. There are so many today that are, are really crushing the church. The character, the very character and the nature of God is missed in the church today. The condition of the human heart, we're bad but not that bad, missed in the church today. Major doctrines on the inerrancy of the word of God, missed today. Things like baptism, the Lord's Supper, the Lord's Day, Marriage, child rearing, these are all doctrinal teachings in the word of God that can be known and established throughout the history of the church. If they're not known, well, that's on us. That's on us. We sit on the shoulders of men and women who have worked really hard to try to help us understand these things. We want to be like Peter and Paul, apostles, who could have spoken apostolically but did not. And they said, we're going to bring this before the elders and the church and the community because this is God's word in the church, in the church communally. So we want to do that. We want to uh, spend the time that's necessary to debate, to, to dig, and really, really get down to those places. So some things I hear about from, from you. I hear, I hear discussions on eschatology a lot. I, I don't, I, you know, I'm, I'm pre-mill, I'm post-mill, I'm all-mill, I'm mill-mill. I don't even know what that is. Right? But I'm one of those somewhere in there. Well, eschatology is a really big deal. It's a really big deal. If you don't understand your eschatology, you will miss things today. Right? So there are things like that that even in our church that hopefully over time we'll be able to work some of these things out. Don't let them hang out there like that for you. Right? There, there are plenty of resources for you to, to dig deep and get answers to these things. Um, if you really want your conscience to be clear as a Christian, it won't be by itself. You say, I want a clear conscience. Well, then do the digging in the context of the church through the word for 2,000 years. Do that kind of digging, all right? All right. Number one, the problem. We know what the problem is. What is the gospel? Number two, the process is with the community. It's not alone. Uh, I got one more point for you. What is the testimony here? This is not just, we're not just going to make this stuff up, right? This is, Peter's going to argue a testimony. Next week, we'll get to James. So after debating, the elders and the apostles, they debate the matter for some time. Look at the latter part of verse 6. Peter stood up and he said to them, he's now speaking to all those that gathered, all those that gathered in the Jerusalem council. Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. So he's talking about what happened with Cornelius. He's saying by my mouth, by my lips. I mean, God. remember God came to him, he was on the top of, Simon Tanner's roof, getting a suntan, right? And the Holy Spirit comes to him and he has the vision of the sheets and he sees the clean and unclean animals and God says, Peter, kill and eat. And Peter says, I will not. Three times he says, I will not. And then God says to him very clearly, what God has made clean, Gentiles do not call unclean. And so 
Peter goes with the servants of Cornelius. He goes to the house. He preaches the gospel. The Holy Spirit's poured out. They believe. The Holy Spirit comes down, and many are saved. And so he's reminding them of this incredible outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Gentiles were believed without circumcision. They believed without the laws of Moses. They believed without any proselytization process to become Jews. Look at verse 8. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them, speaking of those in Cornelius' house, by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did us. And so he's saying, listen, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stand on what God did, on God's knowledge. I'm not going to stand on the traditions of men. I'm not going to stand on old covenant teachings. He says, I'm going I'm to stand on the very fact that God knows the heart and we know they were received. We know they were accepted by God because the Holy Spirit came and dwelt in them too. Peter says, just like it did with us at Pentecost. So if you're going to deny them, you've got to deny us. And if you deny the apostles, what testimony do you have? There is no witness. There's no witness because they are the witnesses of Christ. And so he's affirming all these things taking place without circumcision, without the old covenant. In other words, he's saying to the Jewish Christians, listen, like it or not, Children of Abraham, blood, children of Abraham, like it or not, they're on equal par with us now. God has leveled the playing field. It is no longer biological blood of Abraham that makes you a covenant member of God's community. It is the blood of Jesus Christ that brings us into the covenant promises of Abraham. Jew and Gentile. And so Peter's saying they are full-fledged members of our community. They're in. They're all the way in. There's nothing more for them to do. Look at verse 9. And he, speaking of God, Peter speaking of God, and he made no distinction between us and them, between Jews and Gentiles, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, after all the debate and all the dialogue, we finally get down to the root issue, right? Peter now speaks plainly. God did what? He cleansed their hearts by faith. He said, well, why is that so important? But what is it that keeps us from God? What is it that separates sinful man from a holy God. Is it not the heart? Is it not the heart that's filled with sin? Is it not your heart that is filled with self-glory and a desire for you to be like God? And so Peter comes along and says, what did God do? God cleansed their heart by grace through faith. No circumcision, no temple worship, no purification laws. He cleansed them through the blood of his son. And that simple faith in a crucified Savior, the broken body and the spilled blood, Peter's saying has the power to not only save a Gentile, forgiving them of their sins, but bring them all the way into the covenant community of Abraham. All the promises, all the, uh, the covenant promises made to Abraham now can be enjoyed by these Gentiles simply by what? By trusting in the work of Christ. By trusting in him. And now deep down, I believe, I do, I better be optimistic here. Deep down, the, 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 Christ, the Jewish Christians in the church, they knew that too. They knew that. They, they were saved by the same means, right? Some time had passed, and they're trying to think of ways to, to add to this. They're attempting, though, what they were attempting to do was to enslave these Gentiles. Look at verse 10. This is a word of rebuke. Peter's saying it in love, but it's a rebuke. He says to them, Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. Now, my beloved, you know this. The law was never intended to save. 
It was never given to Israel to save. Paul made it very clear as he's refuting the Judaizers in Galatians. Galatians chapter 3, verse 24. The law is a guardian, a tutor, until Christ comes in order that we might what? We might be justified by faith. Right? So the law was always there to, to separate Israel from the Gentiles, to show people how to live, to point them to Christ. But it was never there to save. And so Peter's saying, why would you do that? Why would you, why would you put the law upon them when it has no power to save? And why would you do it when our own forefathers could not live up to it? He said, all it is is slavery. All you're trying to do is contaminate the pure gospel. And then he asked, this is a, he says, this is a very dangerous endeavor. He says, why, look at verse 10, first part. Why are you putting God to the test? That, that should have been chilling for them. Why are, you, why are you questioning what God's doing? Why are you saying that what God's doing is not sufficient? Right? God has saved them by grace through faith. And now you want to add to that? You're going to test God? So dangerous here. And so Peter, it's almost like he's had enough of the discussion. Peter says, verse 11, We believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. And he brings it right home. He said, we're going to be saved by the grace of Jesus Christ as they're going to be saved by the grace of Jesus Christ. Nothing else, my beloved. This is, this is, a, this is the Jerusalem Council Peter mic drop moment, right? He says it, he drops the mic, and in verse 12 it says everybody goes silent. In other words, he's making the Gentile salvation an object lesson for the Jews, and he's turning it around saying, do you see what you're doing? You're putting your own salvation in jeopardy. Do you see that? There are not two paths to salvation. There's one. There's one. It's salvation by God's grace, unmerited favor, through faith in the crucified, risen, exalted Savior. That's it. Jew, Gentile, male, female, slave, free. It does not matter. And so, Peter is turning everything upside down and saying, if you want to add to this, you can't have it. You add to it, you cannot have it. It's not grace and circumcision. It's not grace and high holy days. It's not, it's not you. It's not your grace and your career or your grace and your education or your grace and whatever you want to add to it. Whatever you add to it, it's kind of pathetic anyway when you think about it, right? I mean, here's the grace of God. Right, poured out through the blood of Jesus Christ, his only son the, son, the sinless son of man, dying for you, and you're going to put what on that? A master's degree? Really, a home? Marriage? It's more than sufficient. It's extraordinary. Unmerited favor available through the son who paid for your sins. What was their response? Look at verse 12. All the assembly fell silent. What, what could they say? They knew he was right. And they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them amongst the Gentiles. In other words, Paul and Barnabas and Sanabin say, that's exactly right, Peter's right, because that's what we saw happen. That's what we saw happen. We shared the gospel, the Gentiles were saved, they weren't circumcised. And they weren't adhering to the laws of Moses. They were saved independent of all old covenant requirements. And so they're testifying to this and the, the assembly is rightly silent because now the gospel has become crystal clear. It's become crystal clear. My beloved, the gospel, when it was shared with you, 
and you repented and you believed and you put your trust in Jesus Christ, that gives all glory to God. You know that. It gives all glory to God because he deserves all the glory. If you know Christ, the only reason you know Christ, the only reason you are sustained in Christ right now, and if you make it to the end, the only reason you will enter is because of God's glory. So the Father sends his Son, his only begotten Son, into the world to do the absolute unthinkable, and that is die for enemies. Rebels like us. The Son willingly and joyfully comes to live the perfect life and die the sinner's death to bring you in and make you a son or a daughter. The Holy Spirit is sent by the Father and the Son to do what? To take dead people and make us alive. He comes and we are born again in Him. He gives us new hearts to actually see that God is holy and that we're not and we need a Savior. And He brings us in and He consummates our faith. He seals our faith, uniting us to, to the Son. And that's, that means that in Jesus' perfect life, his sacrificial death, his resurrection, his exaltation is yours to today. That means you have the same love the Father has for the Son, the Father has for you. It's extraordinary. It's the greatest story ever told because it's true and it's extraordinary. It's the total work of God. Did you hear that? The gospel is the total work of God. And that, my beloved, and I'll close on this, that's what makes the gospel plus anything so hideous. You see that? Not only does a gospel plus message, whatever you add to it, not only does it not have the power to save you or anybody you share it with, God forbid you do that, leaving us in a state of sin and misery and death, but a gospel plus message is attempting to steal God's glory. You're a thief if you do that. But all glory belongs to God. All the majesty, all the grace, all the beauty, all the loveliness and the work and the sacrifice made through Christ. When you say gospel and something, you're taking that glory for yourself. And God hates it. It is hideous. You say, well, what, what about a little circumcision? What about a little religion, Lord? Gospel plus a little religion. Or a little success at work or home or school, whatever you want to take credit for. You realize what we do when we do that? We jump right back to Genesis chapter 3. And we believe the lie that Satan told Adam and Eve. Remember he said to, to Eve, he said, you won't die. But if you eat it, you'll become what? Like God. You'll have the glory of God. That's what they wanted. We believe that lie every single time we add to the gospel. And that's what makes the gospel plus message plus anything so deadly. It is a deadly message. It's deadly for you, and it's deadly for anyone you share it with because it leaves you in your sins. You're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Add to it, there's no salvation. Take that message out to the unsaved, there's no salvation for them. You might as well remain silent. Better that you do than share a false gospel. Right? As Paul said, we come under the curse of God. Uh, I want to leave you with this. If you don't believe me yet, I hope you do. Jesus taught something in Matthew chapter 5 that there are, there are verses and passages that send a chill down my spine. This one has never stopped doing that. Matthew chapter 7, Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said this. Here's the gospel plus people. 
Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. So what is that? Well, that's a great question. Don't answer that alone. Answer that in the context of the church. Answer it in the context of community. The Bible says clearly, John chapter 6, verse 40, Jesus said, my Father's will is this, not arbitrary, that anyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I'll raise him up on the last day. What is the will of the Father? Do you believe in the Son? Why? Because he wants you saved. This is what Jesus is saying to these people on that last day. He continues, Matthew 7, 22. On that day, this is the day of judgment, on that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? They will call him Lord, Lord, because they heard the gospel. Oh, these were people who heard the gospel They came into the church, they were baptized, they were ministry leaders, they were mission leaders, they were church planners. But did you hear why they expected to get in? Did you hear why they expected to be saved? Lord, Lord, gospel, plus what? Their own works. And their works are impressive. I would dare say, probably more impressive than any of our resumes, They prophesied in the name of the Lord. They cast out demons in the name of the Lord. They did many great works in the name of the Lord. Gospel plus their own works gave them, in their thinking, a right to come in, to enter, not by grace alone, but grace and their works. You know what Jesus said? Verse 23, I never knew you. Depart from me, you worker of lawlessness. You know what he's saying? He said, I never knew you by your faith in me. I only knew you by your faith in yourself. I never knew you by your faith simply in me as the lover of your soul and your savior and king to save you because you can't save yourself. I've only known you by your faith in yourself. You added me into the equation. You do, you preach the gospel. You talk about the gospel. You go to church, but really it's you that you're depending upon to be saved and come into the covenant promises of my father. And so he says to them, out into the outer darkness where there is the weeping and gnashing of teeth. My beloved, the question before the Jerusalem Council 2,000 years ago is the same question presented to every single one of us this morning. What is the gospel? How can you be saved? How can you enter into the community of believers, the promises made to Abraham? It is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Make sure you got that answer right today and make sure that's the gospel you're preaching to the lost. Amen? All right, let's pray. Father, forgive us for trying to steal your glory. As if the work of Christ upon the cross is not sufficient for our salvation. Forgive us, Father, for trying to add anything to the pure, beautiful gospel of grace. I ask, Lord, that you would bless us this morning with a a renewed purity in the gospel that you would bless us, Lord, not only with an understanding, but a joy that that should produce, that we truly can say that we are saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. Praise you. Because there's nothing we can do, and we know that, Father. 
I ask, Lord, that every single idol we, try, we try to attach to the gospel, every idol in our heart and mind, that you would cast that out this morning and that we would rest and rejoice in the work that Christ has already completed on our behalf. That we would recognize that even right now, we are holy because he is holy. That we have his righteousness. Oh Lord, do that. Do that for us. Give us such a deep grounding in the gospel that it not only will change the way we believe and we live out this faith, but it will change the way we preach and teach it to others. We want to be faithful witnesses to the true gospel, Lord. I ask that you would do that that you would grow us in that way, that you would bless our community in that way, and that by your grace and mercy, Father, that you would bring many to a saving grace through it. In Jesus' name, amen.